Today's episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15 is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. Let's go into the time machine with DVR, and we'll also take a look at some closers in waiting who may need to wait a little longer. Like death and taxes, Dodgers get a Dodger. I have not had uh, three cold brews yet. It works great in a fantasy I'm just glad I am not at the dentist. Fantasy Baseball in 15 on The Athletic. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball in 15 for Wednesday, April 22nd. I'm Al Melkier, and I am here with Derek Van Riper and uh, DVR. Looks like, uh, based on what I've been seeing on your Twitter feed, that you've been involved in a really interesting draft involving some players, uh, probably the majority of whom I completely forgot about. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. But uh, let's get to some baseball news that's not necessarily uh, fantasy specific but uh, important stuff nonetheless uh minor league baseball and major league baseball are going to continue their discussions on uh possible contraction and there was uh, a report that minor league baseball may be uh ready to agree to contract 42 affiliates and basically wipe out rookie league and single season baseball however they put out a statement on Tuesday that uh, they have not reached any sort of agreement like that yet. And so that's still very much in the up in the air and some better news for baseball. There's a report from Jeff Passan uh, from ESPN uh, where Rob Manfred said that he does expect there to be a 2020 season and a, a separate report from RJ Anderson of CBSSports.com that the scheme may be expanded now to three different locales. We've already got Arizona and Florida as possible locations for games. Texas may now be included uh, in that scheme. So we'll stay on top of those stories because they'll certainly be developing in the coming days and weeks. But DVR, let's get to your 1982 draft. What's that all about? How did uh, that get started? And and uh, what was your experience with that? Yeah, so Ron Chandler organized this league, and it was a, a redraft of 1982. Of course, we know the results from that season, but there's a, a randomized draft order. We had a 12-team league, and the league was made up of uh, participants from the XFL, which is one of the industry's longstanding keeper leagues. So I wasn't alive in 1982 so that made this particular exercise i think unique for me because i've heard of many of the players that were drafted i've probably heard of fewer of the players that were drafted yesterday than just about anybody else in the league but it was still an exercise in in roster construction and and just a simple let's solve the puzzle let's try to build the best five by five team even though we have the stats in front of us and I got to say, it, it's a unique challenge that I really, I, I thought I would enjoy it, but I loved it. I think you could do this for any year in baseball history. You could redo 2019. You could go back to the 20s if you wanted to get really old school. I mean, you could mix it up every time. You could probably do combinations of seasons over the course of a league. And I think a tip of the cap is owed to Todd Zola because he was the mastermind behind the spreadsheet that was uh, supporting this entire thing. We had one 
tab where we were putting in each pick as they were happening, there was a separate tab that was automatically pulling those player names into a roster grid so we could actually like click over and, and not have to type them in twice and see what we'd done so far. And then throughout the draft, Todd had a separate sheet he was running where he was tracking which team selected which player in order to generate live standings throughout. So as we were going through before a pick or at the end of each round, we could actually look at the live standings to that point in the draft and sort of plot our course from there. Uh, so this was something that um, took a lot of legwork. And again, if you're good, really good at Microsoft Excel, I think you could do something similar to what Todd did. And even if you're not, there's probably some ways to actually set up something similar on your own. Wow, that does sound really cool. And it sounds like you definitely recommend it. So if you could organize something like that yourself, do you think you'd be more likely to draft for a season that you remember really well, or maybe go back in time uh, to use it as a way maybe to learn something about a season you don't know as much about? I'd probably go more towards the latter. I, I think both could be fun for totally different reasons. But as uh, as time between picks, I had kind of a middle of the draft order pick. I picked fifth overall in a 12-team league. So I had a good bit of time between picks each round. I was digging through my player list. And I, I didn't have any sort of draft software I could use. I had some stats pages that I pulled into a spreadsheet. And I was basically just crossing them off. So I, I didn't have any sort of advanced technology other than being able to look up players individually on fan graphs and you know messing around with some of their databases on the fly. Um, I, I had as much fun learning who some players were and, and kind of tracking what 1982 looked like for them compared to the rest of their career. And uh, it seemed like a lot of bench coaches and managers and even broadcasters were drafted because you know, 82 is a while ago, almost 40 years ago. So a lot of those players are still long-term parts of the game in different ways. So uh, I think the challenge of going into a different era especially was fun because as you know, Al, I mean, strikeouts in the 80s were non-existent compared to where they are today. Um, stolen bases are pretty easy to find. So 130 steals from Ricky Henderson in the first round is awesome, uh, but it's not as much of a slam dunk sort of thing that you have to do um, when you know the results of a league, taking their injury risk away, pitching might be pushed up more than it would be ordinarily. There's all sorts of different wrinkles that I think each era could present. So I would probably be more inclined to say test out years further in the past that you really don't remember at all or that you remember very little about. Now, some of those different wrinkles that you're talking about, uh, you know, the, the obvious, more obvious ones, like you say, the the prevalence of steals, uh, the lack of strikeouts. Uh, I assume that those were things that you were at least somewhat accounting for before you went into it. But were there things that you noticed drafting on the fly, like, oh, I'm going to have to account for this, or oh, this, you know, this position or this category isn't playing out the way I thought it would. Yeah, I think the thing that struck me while we were actually going through the draft was the the way that relievers who get saves also pitched in situations where they picked up more wins you know like you could actually find relievers with a dozen or more saves who also gave you 8 10 12 wins on top of that so you just don't think to even look at the win total of a closer when you're drafting for the future because those are so noisy but when you're looking back at the past, and especially in that era, 
you have this completely different usage that really changes the way you round out your your group of pitchers. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I noticed, uh, and I can't remember now which pitcher it was, but you took a pitcher who had double digit wins and saves. And it was somebody I, I didn't even remember. And I, I watched baseball in 1982. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, looking at, at your roster, um, you know, it, it brought back some memories, but it also made me feel like my memory isn't uh, what I wish it was. <laughs> ah, well, I mean, the first three rounds I went Ricky Henderson, Mike Schmidt, Gary Carter. I mean, those guys were stars players people definitely remember watching and they had great careers but yeah my fourth round pick was dan spilner because of that the combination was- of wins and saves and the way the closer run was going and uh seeing that the the pool because so many different relievers were used you know teams didn't have a locked in closer in that era so there were a lot of guys that had six eight ten saves who you know they just got them sometimes because that's how it worked it wasn't that someone else lost a job. It was just kind of a, a committee sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, really cool. Get it's sort of gotten me psyched to uh, uh, try something like that. So um, very, uh, very neat. And are there going to be more of those, or um, was that was that a one shot? I think we're going to try some more because the XFL for player management in season does monthly supplemental drafts instead of weekly ads and drops. And we kind of had those on the calendar already for, I think, the third Monday of every month or third Sunday of every month. So we're just going to take the time we'd already blocked off to do that and actually continue to run uh, different years in this format. Very cool. Well, I will look forward to seeing the results of those uh, those other uh, drafts. Uh, but you know, you're talking about the way that uh, reliever usage has changed. And uh, I'm in a bit of a mood to talk about closers because... Uh, I read a piece in Forbes by Tony Blangino, uh, and and Tony's stuff is always fantastic, so this was uh, certainly no exception, wrote a piece uh, about closers and not only how they, as we all know, tend to miss a lot of bats, but also uh, are really good at uh, managing contact, and I'll give you the info on that because, surprise, surprise, that's going to be our featured read today, but it did get me thinking about closers and waiting and uh, the closers they might replace, and so DVR, I went back to, to last season and tried to find all the pitchers that eventually became closers but didn't start out the year as closers but took over from a closer who was demoted from the role. So I, I excluded those who either got hurt or, or traded um, and just you know one closer uh, usurping the job from, a, from another closer. And this is what I came up with. I don't think I missed anybody. If, somebody, if there's an obvious, obvious omission, let me know. Taylor Rogers very early on took the uh, – the role from Blake Parker. In fact, I had to look up and double check because I had sort of forgotten that Blake Parker started out as the Twins closer. Uh, Ian Kennedy, same deal. He became closer pretty quickly for the Royals, but initially it was a committee situation. Liam Hendricks, of course. Uh, Hansel Robles uh, taking over from Cody Allen. This is not the first time I've had to remind myself that Cody Allen started out as the Angels closer in 2019. I uh that uh, just that that went into a a memory gap somewhere. Emilio Pagan uh, with the Rays, Luke Jackson, and Mark Melanson for the Braves. Melanson, of course, supplanting Jackson, and uh, Brandon Workman uh, settling in after there was pretty much a committee situation with the Red Sox, and it took Workman a long time to get that role. So you know, uh, definitely a good group of closers going into 2020, but. You know, I have this idea about closers and waiting that they take over from closers who 
are clearly inferior in terms of a skills perspective. And yet a lot of these uh, closers and weighty who became closers last season wound up with better skill sets than I would have guessed on draft day. Liam Hendricks, I mean, would anybody have guessed that he would be the closer in place of uh, Blake Trinan, Hansel Robles? Uh, people were very skeptical of, skeptical of him all the way into the, the latter part of the season. Uh, Emilio Pagan really broke out. Brandon Workman. So I'm not sure that, that how useful the model that is in terms of looking for closers and waiting, finding a, somebody who's really looks vulnerable and then looking at who's the hot shot setup reliever that that uh, could, could take it over. Um, I'm thinking maybe that's not as, uh, not as easy to do as I thought. Yeah. And I've heard this come up before with deeper leagues in the past and owners trying to find the handcuff. So in an AL or NL only league, you know, if you're, you're drafting, uh, Kenley Jansen in 2020, then you'd also draft Blake Trinan. And that seems like you'd be totally safe. But if Jansen were to get hurt, uh, somebody else emerges to actually take that role instead of Trinan. And then you end up getting caught where you rostered a handcuff who uh, didn't get the job for some reason. Probably they weren't pitching that well. So they're not really helping your ratios, maybe not even helping your Ks all that much. And you paid the premium for the first closer. So Closer and waiting is kind of a slippery slope. I think what makes it challenging, and it's what makes forecasting closers in general difficult, is that it's a, it's a role that doesn't require the best skills, and it's a role that doesn't necessarily require you to be the best reliever in your bullpen. It's not even the, not even the most important role in the game for a reliever in a lot of instances. And I think we've seen teams start to make that move down the path of using their best reliever in the highest leverage spot. We've seen the Brewers do it with Josh Hader. We've seen even the Twins before Taylor Rogers was a closer. I kind of thought, hey, maybe they're one of the teams that's going to just say, this is our best guy. Let's use him where we can. Uh, and that's really left me in this place where I don't want to wait long for the next closer up to get the opportunity. It's more of a, if I draft someone like that who's a closer in waiting right now, I want the job to flip in the first week. Otherwise, I'm going to let that player go and probably use that roster spot for something else like streaming starting pitchers. Okay, well, you know, so that that's an interesting approach then to bring into what could very well be a condensed uh, and, and certainly a shortened season. Uh, because what I did was I, I took a look at that uh, Tony Blangino piece, and he linked to some tables where he showed pitchers that scored well and didn't score well. Uh, and I'm sorry, I say pitchers, I mean specifically closers, who um, you know what, how well they scored in terms of contact management using a measure that he created. Uh, and for the most part, the the ones that scored low were pretty much the ones you would guess. Josh Hader did not score well on that, which was not totally shocking because when he does give up contact, which is not often, uh, it's it's usually pretty hard contact. But I, I certainly don't look at Hader as somebody who would be endangered. But if you do look at you know Mark Melanson with Will Smith right behind him, Edwin Diaz, we've talked about him in past episodes and how he might be vulnerable. Archie Bradley is somebody who didn't score well on uh, Blangino's measure. We've talked about Aaron Bummer being uh, right behind Alex Colomay. Uh, Colomay did not score well. Um, Michael Givens didn't score well, so maybe Hunter Harvey. Uh, and Brad Hand, who had that miserable second half, um, you know, he didn't score well either. So given your approach, DBR, 
if uh, you don't see that switch flip from, say, Melanson to Will Smith or Edwin Diaz to Seth Lugo in the first week or two of the season, whenever it starts, then does that hold for you or does it change because of the nature of, of this particular season? You know, I think this season probably makes me more willing to cut the player within a week than I would be if we were waiting it out for a full 26-week season. I think you could be a little more patient, but I think just as big league teams are going to have to make quicker decisions in what is almost certainly going to be a significantly shortened 2020 season, we have to follow suit. And that's one of the hardest things. Cutting players is difficult. Deciding which player you drafted on draft day who does have room for growth, who has ceiling, who has that U-word, has upside, letting them go and being worried about the player getting picked up by someone else and doing well for them, like that is a real fear that I think most of us have wrestled with pretty often as we're going about managing our teams. Uh, I think the owners who are more willing to churn probably have an advantage this season in particular uh, as teams are going to be, I think, a lot more aggressive. But the thing that could also really mix things up for us is the possibility of our condensed schedule this season having shorter games or double headers or larger rosters because that would change the shape of something like the closer pool in a pretty big way. You know, you're not going to have a lot of relievers pitching in two games on the same day. So if a team wins two close games on the same day, there are two save opportunities potentially that are available too. So uh, we might get some extra wrinkles that make it more complicated, but generally I want to be more aggressive than usual because we're just not going to have a lot of time to wait things out this season. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. And that's also a good point too about the the double headers and how uh, you may have co-closers. Uh, you probably would have co-closers uh, on a lot of teams. So on that note, if you want to look for closers maybe who uh, see more vulnerable or situations where a backup closer might get even more play, I do recommend you taking a look at Tony Blangino's piece in Forbes. The title is Closers Do More Than Miss Bats. They're quality contact managers too. Really great piece uh, by Tony Blangino. So uh, with that said, we're going to wrap things up here for today's episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off of your subscription just by going to theathletic.com slash baseball in 15 or give our 90 day free trial a whirl and uh, either way everything that we do is going to be a part of your subscription if you're listening to this podcast on a platform that lets you leave a rating and review we would greatly appreciate it if you take the time to do that for Derek Van Riper I'm Al Melchior we'll be right back here on Thursday Mm -hmm. 